back to Skincare Anarchy. This is your host, Ekta, and today I have with me Sophia Panich, who is the Editorial Content Director for Pop Sugar UK. So welcome to the show, Sophia. I'm so excited you had time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, I would love to get started, as I always do. I want to know all about your career and your journey in editorial and how you really, um, you know, picked that as your career and got to where you are now. Okay, um, so I'm gonna try and make this as concise as possible. Um, <laughs> we have time. <laughs> it, it, it meanders a bit. Um, so I I didn't know I wanted to work in editorial. Um, I didn't know it was a job. Um, my dad was actually a newspaper journalist, so I knew what a journalist was. I just didn't know there were journalists that did fashion and beauty. Um, oh, yeah. And so I moved to New York City. I went there for college, but I had been a ballet dancer and that was my plan. I planned to go to school for a year to get to New York and find a dance job and quit. Wow. Um, so that was the plan. Um, yeah. I was working at a ballet studio uh, uptown and I've had uh, injuries that have plagued me since I was a teenager. So it just started to, I just started to realize that I wasn't going to be able to dance ballet in the way that I wanted to professionally. So yeah, yeah. I realized that I needed to make, uh, I needed to figure out what I was going to do. So I did, I, I actually have continued dancing my whole life, just not professionally. professionally. But so that's, my, so, that's so cool though, that ballet yeah. was your first love. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it did eventually inform my career. I can, I'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. But so I, I was at NYU. I chose art history. I felt it was in the arts. I felt it was, you know, I love history. I love art. I love writing. It was kind of all three things combined. I didn't know what I would do with it. I just chose it. Um, I love that. <laughs> and in the meantime, I was waitressing. I was working at the dance studio. I was, and so I graduated college and I had had this friend who I'd known all through NYU who was like, she had interned everywhere. She'd interned at Elle, Vogue, oh, Harper's, wow. Brides. And she ended up at Glamour in the US. And um, she knew I was interested in fashion and beauty. I, I, I loved fashion and beauty my whole life. Um, right. You know, I used to spend hours on style.com just looking at the shows and when we first got a computer in our house. <laughs> I clicked through the shows. And so I knew that I loved it. I just, you know, I didn't know you could work. I didn't know even how to attempt to work there, but she had been interning at magazines. And after college, um, she was like, you know, I, I know you, you kind of want to work. At, you said you might want to work in magazines, but I know this fragrance company that needs a PR assistant and I think you'd be great. And so I was like, sure. I don't know what a PR assistant is, but I'm going to do it. And I, what is job. a PR assistant? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in that position, it ended up being basically everyone's assistant plus some PR, but um, oh, it was okay. really helping the director um, print out press releases, reach out to contacts at magazines. So that was really my first in, like 
experience with magazine editors and, and being like, oh, there's people that work there that you pay. Yeah. Like this is a real <laughs> career. Wow. <laughs> and, and so then the director quit and I was all by myself. I was 22 running PR oh. that I knew nothing about. I didn't go to school for it. And um, I realized that I needed to be in something more creative as a dancer, as you know, it just, it wasn't an artist. I mean, you're an artist at heart. So yeah. 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 And so luckily Glamour had an opening and um, in their beauty closet uh, for a freelance assistant. And I didn't care what the pay was. I didn't care what it entailed. I was like, I'm doing it. I don't care. Um, it was a four day a week job. I think I got paid $75 a day. Oh, wow. Um, so I was teaching dance on the side while working at Glamour and I was in the beauty closet. And that was really, that was my way in. That was that was my training. That was my internship. That was everything. Um, because it really gave me, I was working under this amazing beauty director named Felicia Malevich, who was in the industry for decades. And I learned the ins and out of what it took to work in a magazine, all the different bits and pieces. I learned, I basically sat in the beauty closet all day and called in product. So I just be, I just, you know, I would organize the products. I would call them in. I would do the the credit sheets for the magazine. And, and I became, I was like the library in my brain of beauty products. And I was like, I'm love really, that. I love this. This yeah. is cool. <laughs> um, it's like the, a dream job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, but yeah, so I was only, I was working four days a week. I was dancing. Like I would be doing shows in the Midwest and then we would drive through the night and drop me off at the beauty closet. I was sleeping in the beauty closet like oh. on a Monday morning, like freshen up and then go to work. Um, wow. And so after, so I've been there for Talk a about year. hard work. No, seriously, <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. Um, yeah. And so after that, um, I knew that I needed, you know, I wasn't doing much writing at all. I was really just in the closet hanging out with beauty products. And <laughs> so, um, I hadn't, you know, sell a couple of magazines had opened up assistants and Allure opened up an assistant position and I immediately went for it. Um, I'd been, I'd went for a couple and been rejected. And so I was like, oh gosh, I really hope I get this. Um, I didn't have any writing samples. I had to give them a college essay on like a flooded, a flooded historical site in Turkey. Cause I was just like, I just need you to see that I can write. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Lo and behold, I got the job, the assistant job to the beauty director at Allure. Um, and I had, I stayed there then for the next 10 years. Um, wow. So, so you found was, home. <laughs> I found home. I really did find home. I started out as a, an assistant on the print side. Um, I then moved up and I was the editor that went to Milan and Paris every fashion week. So I did backstage at fashion week for, for seven years. Um, and How is that by the way? Cause I've <laughs> always wondered, like, this is such a cheesy question, no. but like, I've always wondered like what it would be like to be backstage at the, at, you know, like, you know, big fashion week shows and stuff. So how was that when you first did that? I mean, it was absolutely terrifying when I, yeah. my first show backstage was in Milan with Pat McGrath at Gucci. I never met Pat. I just knew her. She was like a superstar to me. Um, oh, wow. you know. I'm obsessed with Pat. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, you're stuffed in this room. You're everybody. It just was, it, it was terrifying, but it, in the, and it, it, 
it's just one of the coolest things. And I think as a dancer, I appreciated it because backstage felt like backstage to me. I, it felt yeah. like home, um, getting ready for something, hair and makeup. Um, it's incredibly stressful um, because, you know, people are running around. Sometimes they're getting ready in 10 minutes before the show and you're trying to get quotes and it's, yeah. it's a lot, but, and, and, you know, we would be exhausted by the end, but it's also just one of them coolest experiences and and the information that you would get from makeup artists and hairstylists um, about all the products they use, whether it's the skin they're prepping the face with or the hairspray they're spraying the style with. Like you just, you got in, I had invaluable insight to what professionals use and how they work. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's such a unique position to be in. And I've, I've always um, wondered that too, about editorial is that, you know, you, you see so much and you see so many products and you, you know, with, and makeup artists that are using those products. Mm-hmm. I always wonder, um, you know, someone in your position, like, do you ever wonder, like, you know, I know exactly what's wrong with this industry and I'm just going to make my own thing. Yeah. Like, has that ever crossed your mind? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I have not thought about making my own thing simply because I don't have any reason to at this point. I don't have anything that I think I could bring to the table quite yet. Um, but I think, I think what I learned backstage is the difference between the products that people really use and the sponsored shows and, and things like that. And, and, um, what makes a good product. Great. So how, I have a question, Sophia. I, I'm really curious, like, when it comes to backstage or anything, really, any event um, that, you know, editorial, from the editorial side that you're involved in, um, how are makeup artists and all of, like, that team, like, picked for shows like that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. how does that work? Um, okay, so each makeup artist's lead, Pat McGrath, um, you know, Diane Kendall, they have their core team that they work with all year round or that, or if they don't work with all of them all year round, they work with them for the shows every season. It's their core. I think, yeah, they, you always, they're always with them. Um, But then there are artists who go to the cities that go to New York, London, Milan and Paris, and they fund themselves and they will hope to get on teams. Um, You know, people need, um, more, you know, more bodies, um, as they always do. Cause sometimes the shows are 60 models and you only have right. a core 15. Um, those are for, and then you also have, if a, if a show is sponsored, um, so say Mac is sponsoring a show or NARS is sponsoring a show, they have their own team of artists. So the head makeup artist, like Diane Kendall, for instance, who works with NARS quite a bit and Mac, um, she has her core assistants, but then NARS or Mac would supply their team of artists around 15. Uh, so there's a, there's a couple different ways it works, but those are the kind of three, three ways it, I've seen it go. That's very interesting. Um, I know I interrupted you. Um, you were um, oh, no. like, yeah, I'm so sorry about that. But um, no, I actually, I, yeah, I'd always wondered. And, you know, for me, the editorial world has always been like a gray area. Don't get me wrong. I've always been inspired by, <laughs> you know, magazines and I, and I love them and I love the writing and the journalism that's there. But it's always, for me, felt like this world that no one could ever see inside of, you know what I mean? So like, that's uh, my goal here at Skincare Anarchy is just to show a little peek. So I would love for you to tell us, like, um, you know, as an editorial director, like, what do you deal with on a day-to-day basis? Like, what are some of the projects that you have to, you know, handle versus other editors? Um, 
I mean, I'm it's I'm managing a team of editors. Um, I did it at Allure, and now I'm doing it at Pop Sugar. Um, and you're kind of like a conductor conducting an orchestra in a way. Um, yeah. You're you you are you know making sure that everybody is creating the stories. Um, you know, working on their stories, and these stories are all they're both addressing the news of the day we're working where I'm talking digital. So, you know, yeah. we're covering the news that's happening, but then we're also creating the stories that um, are part of our content strategy overall. So um, and making sure that they're on, you know, they're on top of that, that I'm contributing as well. I'm writing myself, um, but then I'm editing all of them to make sure that it aligns with tone, the tone and the voice of the site. Um, right you know, we're working, I'm working through their headlines and, and things like that. Um, and then also just overseeing the market um, in terms of beauty specifically. So, I mean, the other editors do that, but I, I'm also out in the market, yeah. out on my computer these days, um, meeting with brands and and working on stories. Yeah. So yeah. that's a very condensed way to put what I do in a day but um right no I mean it's interesting though it's interesting to me because I wonder um you know what I mean like the the hierarchy of editorial because I know there's writers and editors Mm -hmm. and then um you know obviously you're a director and um I always wonder how the roles really mesh together now I do have a random question Mm -hmm. have you ever had uh, a writer or an editor that you've been working with and they've just flat out been like you know what I don't like the story I'm not I can't write about this like have you had to deal with that Oh yeah. 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 How do how does that work? Like if you just have somebody that refuses, they're like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> well, I think it depends on why they're refusing. Um, you know, sometimes a story just ends up not being good. You know, we thought it, it not not being good, but sometimes the story changes as you report it, as you start writing it. Um right. and so those are the conversations that I have um on a daily basis because stories will transform. Um sometimes. And so, you know, if it's just not working out, um, it'll be dropped or we'll figure out ways to fix it. Um, then there's sometimes stories that people don't feel comfortable writing. And that's obviously something I want to respect. And if somebody doesn't feel comfortable, I'm, I'm, I would never want them to write something. Um, Of course, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, not, I'm actually, I, I asked that because, you know, in my past interviews, I've, you know, I've kind of, done like a little bit of questioning on the on the end of like well who's writing the content for example like mm-hmm. if there's a new hair product out that works really well for black women or you know asian women or whatever like you know who gets assigned these stories and how does that whole process work because that, that's where I was I get so confused because I I know I had um for example Kayla Greaves on and Kayla was telling us about how you know a lot of times um if there's a story coming out about a product or a brand that's really catered towards black women and men <laughs> it's like four black writers in the whole you know industry and they just yeah. get all of the work and so I, I I'm really curious about that too from your end as a director like when you're distributing work like is that something that comes up um for you or is that something you have to deal with as well oh yeah I mean um and and it's you know we want to be my whole goal and my team's whole goal is to make sure that our content is super representative and super inclusive of 
the beauty market as a whole and that we are talking about products um, that uh, that any person can use yeah. regardless of their hair or how their hair looks or their the their complexion so um or their skin type or anything so um you know i never force a review on any of my writers um right i pardon that's good that's good yeah yeah <laughs> it's often a conversation so we'll you know we'll talk about the brands that have launched um I'll, you know, oftentimes people will suggest or, or oftentimes the writers will jump on and be like, you know what, I, I really want to write this. Um, yeah. And I'll often just ask. I also, you know, we're, I think one thing to, to clarify is that my team in the UK is very small. So I have three editors and then it's myself. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so we are editorial team. So we don't have, you know, I'm already dealing with just, you know, bandwidth in terms of writing about all the stuff we want to want to write about. So, um, right. Right. Also employing a big group of really amazing freelance writers to help with that. Because also I think with beauty, I think my big thing is, you know, on these sites, when you've got your three, four beauty editors, um, it's great that they give amazing reviews, but I think I also want to make sure that we are getting more voices in just in yes. general, regardless exactly. of anything. It's just, you know, different people. Um, so uh, I have a really great group of um, freelance writers in the UK who are always pitching me reviews and products to write up. So um, I honestly, yeah. in the past two years, <laughs> haven't felt like I'm at a real loss um, in terms of like, or, or I haven't felt like I've had a hard time getting people to cover products because I, I also think we're just our team is so invigorated in wanting to re- make our content really yeah. representative of the UK um, that we're excited when there's new brands that come out and new launches especially smaller brands here in the UK which I think sometimes have a harder time breaking yeah. through um, we really like to champion them so I, I love that question. But... No, it does. No, it does. And you know, honestly, I'm so glad you brought up freelancing because that was one of the questions I had for you was that, you know, do you work with a lot of freelance writers? Because, you know, just through this journey of the podcast, I've met so many amazing um, writers mm-hmm. and they often tell me yeah, like, you know, yeah, I freelance, you know, part time. And I've never understood where that you know, piece of the puzzle really fits in. But I actually have a question for you, um, very specific to UK beauty brands. Um, okay. How do you how do you feel about the the skincare industry scene um, in the UK as compared to what you might see come out here in the US? Um, I know here mm. we we've got you know I think this is global, but you know there's this huge saturation of the market, and I feel like it's just like one brand after another. So like in terms of like sorting through and really finding that new great product or new great brand um what are some of the the steps that you have to take or some of the things you have to deal with yeah um that was a huge I was not I knew that the markets differed when I moved two years ago to London yeah um but I was not expecting there to be such a difference um in terms of launch date in terms of formulation in terms of even sometimes product name differs so it's the same product it has a different name um so I was really thrown for a loop when I first moved because I was trying to wrap my head around what products have I seen 
that are here and what hasn't. And, and um, so it's very interesting. Um, and it's been a real eye opener. And um, right. I feel like I actually have great understanding now of even more of the US side because of seeing the differences between the two markets. But it's equally as saturated here in the UK. No, you know, absolutely, like completely. Um, maybe not as saturated as the US. Um, right. In terms of the amount of new brands that are launching, um, I think, yeah, it, it, so it is, we are still going through lots of product each month. Um, yeah, because here it's like every day there's a new brand, I feel like. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, I would say there's less new brands than in the US, but it's still quite a, a bit, you know, and, and the other thing is we're seeing Boots here is doing a huge push. Um, they have been for the past two years, basically, to grow their beauty shelves. And so to do that, they've brought in a ton of new brands. So, you know, oh, yeah. Huda came in and, and um, what we Sunbum they recently brought in. And I mean, I'm just scratching the surface of what they've, what Boots has um, started selling. Um, but it's all a lot of these American brands that haven't been in the UK yet. So, um, right. so by doing that, it's definitely brought more into the market. Um, and it feels no. like it's gone up recently in the past six months. I so. mean, honestly though, Sophia, like this is getting crazy, right? Like it's like every, every day, like I swear, like I see a new brand and I'm that's why I asked you, I'm like, is it the same over there? Because yeah. here it's like almost hard to keep up like every day. It is. You know, so yeah. 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 And, and we do an, every month we do, uh, you know, stories on new products that have launched and the, and the galleries are just getting bigger and bigger to the point where we're going to have to, yeah. you know, <laughs> figure out like how to, well, break it you up. know, eventually it's going to be very hard to write about everything. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious how this industry mm-hmm. is going to like turn, but my next question honestly is about um, more about the standards in the EU as compared to America. Like I know that, you know, talking to some brands, um, they've definitely brought up the idea that, you know, the list for, for example, clean beauty is extremely more, you know, it's more, um, you know, strict and there's a lot more, you know, things on that list in the EU versus, mm-hmm. you know, here in the States. So when you work with brands, especially with skincare, um, is it like, what what is that? Like the formulation component that you have to kind of like, um, deal with like do you just ask them about their formula or like do they go into depth about any other tests or you know hurdles they have to jump through to be able to make their product and you know in the UK or anything like that oh yeah I mean I've I've talked to a lot of um brand founders both in skincare and and in makeup um actually who have told me the processes of bringing their brand to the UK and the EU. And it is, I, it is not easy. Um, it goes down. It's everything. It's every bit of the product. It's, it's the labeling. It's making sure the labeling is, is up to, up to standards. Cause it's different. Um, every, you know, having the formulas tested and, and, um, sh- you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a huge investment. And so I know for small brands to expand, internationally is really difficult um, because there's a huge cost that's associated with getting your formulations tested and um, in the UK, even after they've been, after they've been approved in the U S um, yeah. and, yeah. and in some cases with thing, you know, I think the most famous example is the Sunday Riley um, good jeans. Um, 
that that formulation had to change because it's not just the it's not just the clean it's not just the i don't it's not just the ingredients that are banned it's sometimes the percentages of the ingredients so you know you're not allowed to have certain alpha hydroxy acids at a certain percentage level here oh, in, no. well eu in uk um and so that's why good genes is actually a different formula in the yeah. UK than it is in the US. Um, and yeah, so- I know the ordinary had something right. Like one of their masks is like really like potent. It's like thirty percent AHA BHA, and like you're not allowed to like even yep. have it in certain countries. Yeah, yep. They they restrict the amount of AHA. I know for sure. Um, and and then and, and I mean. Then in terms of the over-the-counter, um, you know, I think there's benzoyl peroxide, I believe, is not available over here for over-the-counter. It has to be by um, prescription. So that was a new new thing that I had to um, get used to because so a lot of the spot treatments that we're used to, like all, like, I mean, Clean and Clear doesn't, isn't sold here, but a lot of that Clean and Clear stuff wouldn't be able to be sold here. So, right. I mean, the pharmacies are totally different too in the UK. Like I know I was there for one of my um, rotations and I, whenever mm-hmm. I visited, like I, I go into a pharmacy and I'm like, I don't even know if I can find what I need here because I know that so much is not on the shelves as compared to like Walgreens, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right down the road. And that's so interesting um, in terms of beauty, because this, for me, you would think it would change the market, right? Like you would think it would make it less saturated, but I mean, clearly, as we just talked about, you know, it's still a problem there as well. No, no, no. It's, it's, you know, the brands, especially the heritage brands, like the P&Gs and the Unilevers, like they've been here for so long that they, it's, you know, they're running to, I found that in L'Oreal, like they're running the products are, 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 can be quite different. And so I think it feels like they're, they've got different strategies for different markets to be, uh, it, it, from, from a perspective of somebody who was in the U S and then came from the UK or came to the right. UK. So. Right. Right. Now I want to ask you a little bit about like initiatives that brands get behind in the UK as compared to here. I mean, you know, I, it doesn't even have to be in comparison, but like some of the, I know a lot of times, you know, the feedback I've gotten from editors is like, they, will look for a brand and really look for the story of that brand and if they you know vibe with it and if if that brand is standing for something that they believe in or that they think is a good cause so from that standpoint um what are some of the initiatives that you've seen brands get behind in the UK I know that you know here like sustainability is huge but also political issues come in in the U.S. a lot I feel Mm -hmm. like so like I'm curious from that standpoint you know like what are some of the causes and initiatives Mm -hmm. I mean sustainability is is the, it's huge here. It is, they have been talking about sustainability years before the US. Um, I mean, when I got here, there were, you know, wipes have been banned from, you know, Selfridges doesn't sell wipes anymore. And I think, you know, a lot of these retailers were like, no more wipes. Um, so, so many brands here are talking about sustainability. It is part, I mean, if they're not talking about sustainability, it's, it's hard to get on board with them here in the UK. I think um, yeah. in every event that I have attended in the past six months, brands are, have either repackaged or in the process of repackaging or talking about their, you know, 
five-year plan on how to become more sustainable. So I think yeah. it's in the UK and in the EU, it's, it's almost less of an initiative to get behind and it is just what it has to be. Um, right. right. And if you don't, I think it's just, you know, a lot of beauty editors here won't write about you if you're not sustainable. Um, we won't cover wipes. Um, it's just not something we'll do. Um, or sheet masks that are not biodegradable. So um, uh, right. in terms of political uh, initiatives, there definitely is not the same. I don't see, I have not seen a ton of init political initiatives that brands are beginning behind. Aware women's health, gynecological issues, um, breast cancer awareness, those things. Um, they really get behind, which is awesome. And yeah, um, it's just kind of like universal as well, right? Like that's those are very universal, um, to, you know, areas. So that's good. Yeah, I, I I don't see as many brands mixing beauty with politics here as I do in the U.S. for sure. Yeah, that's that's really what I wanted to ask, and I think you know because for me, I I don't know what your opinion about it is, but for me, it's almost as if it's like an easy way to sell their products. That's how I see it. You know what I mean? And I always get, it's always like cringy for me because it's like, you know, just because something is going on doesn't mean that you have to put in your pitch for your, you know, your line now because, yeah. you know. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, yeah. I, I think that's why I think, um, you know, in terms of women's issues and bringing attention to it and, I think I can get behind that. And, and that's, you know, if they're going to be donating portions and you always have to look into, you know, what are they actually donating? How much? Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I it does often feel like we're writing this issue to sell product. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, it feels like you said, it feels icky. Yeah. And, you know, I actually want to, um, I, I want to ask you, uh, you know, per from a personal perspective, like when you look for a brand that you really end up liking, what are some of the things, I mean, have you noticed that you gravitate more towards like certain types of brands or companies, or is it kind of very random for you when you discover something you really like? Cause I'm, I'm guessing, you know, it's very difficult because you, you get so many product, right? So. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think when we're talking about skincare, um, from a personal perspective, I mean, when, we're, when even just to cover, um, you know, I'm looking at, I know this, you've heard this millions of times and it's getting to the point where it doesn't mean much, but does the brand feel authentic? Does it feel like it's believes in what it's doing or is it hopping on a trend just to sell products? So is it jumping on the CBD trend just to sell a lot of new bombs and tinctures and things like that, or, or serums. Um, yeah. So does it, is there a reason that it, this brand exists and is it fulfilling a reason? Um, but for me, almost more than anything is the formulations and the testing behind the formulations. I mean, my years at Allure, like the way we vetted product was like no other. And when, you know, we, gave things skincare, a best of beauty award or a breakthrough award. Like we combed through the research. So it's something that even though I'm not there anymore, I apply to how I look at products. So, you know, I love that. I love that. And Allure really is that, you know, like 
standard i think in beauty for a lot of people who don't know much about editorial mm-hmm. we look at allure like the holy you know what i mean like yeah the holy of everything but you know i i like that you have that background that you're able to bring it to a new publication i mean was that was that difficult or that transition or i mean does anybody ever give you any kind of like fight back when you have like old methodologies that you like to employ or you know I, you know what i'm trying to say right like just in yeah. general like your approach no no i think um you know, I think sometimes it's, I think sometimes I like to see more reporting and, um, no, 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 that's not what I want to say. Um, (laughs) I think for me, um, it's just changing the way you work, um, and understanding that like, anytime you're going to write about skincare, you need to get an expert voice in there. Um, I think it's just necessary. And yes, we're beauty editors. We're experts in a way, but we're not doctors and we're not scientists. So I, I almost feel, yeah, I like, I, I tend to, you know, if I'm talking about a new product, Oh, this launched, that's fine. I don't, you know, I can, right without an expert, but if we're going to do a review or we're going to do a story about a product trend or an ingredient trend, there has to be doctors and scientific voices in those pieces. So as long as you work that into your workflow as an editor, yeah. as a writer, it doesn't really change, you know, it, it, it's just something you need to start practicing. Um, so I've never felt any pushback. I think it's just getting used to working in that way. Um, yeah. And just kind of telling yourself, yeah, if, if I'm going to write about skincare, I need to have, I need to look into this because it's important because you're telling people what to put on their face. Exactly. And it's like a medical <laughs> issue, you know, it's like, absolutely. I hundred percent agree with everything you said. And, you know, I, I actually have a follow-up question about that because mm-hmm. I've always wondered how um, ed- editorial teams work with dermatologists. I know that um, oftentimes there's like a quote in an article from a dermatologist, like, you know, a, cele- a celebrity derm or something like that. But I'm, I'm more curious about the back, um, the backstage, like, you know, process of when you basically call a dermatologist, like, what are you asking them? Are you basically saying, hey, here's a product, tell me if you like it, or is it like more pinpointed questions, you know, in terms of the research that you're doing? Yeah, it, it, it's usually way more pinpointed. Um, you know, if I'm reviewing a product, sometimes I'll ask them about ingredient, you know, I, you don't, a lot of dermatologists aren't going to recommend a whole lot, you know, they have the stuff that they like and they recommend. And, um, I, you know, oftentimes if you're showing them a product from a brand that they're not familiar with, you're not going to recommend it. Um, so it's more about asking them, you know, what, what, so there's glycerin mixed with hyaluronic acid and ceramides in this formula. What, what do you think, what does that benefit? What does that do? Um, why is that a good thing? Um, or, you know, having them, sometimes you do have them look at the research. Um, those are for much bigger stories, but getting their input in into what they're seeing. Um, uh, and yeah, if, if it's about um, an ingredient trend or a procedure or, you know, anything or about, yeah, it, then we'll ask more pointed questions on what we want to know. Um, we do a lot of... Um, pieces that look at advice for skincare. So how to treat eczema and how, or, um, you know, should you be wearing antioxidants inside? So obviously we're talking, we're asking them those specific questions. Um, rarely do we just send them a product and say, 
what do you think of this? Um, yeah. <laughs> this probably, you know, <laughs> not the best approach. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, I found, you know, derms have their, they have the brands that they trust and, and it's why you should pay attention to those brands and know what they are. Um, uh, and also use them in your stories. If you're talking about products, the moisturizers for dry skin and things like that, but Absolutely. No, I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I've always wondered about skincare, I'm not going to lie, is like, I feel like in terms of like the medicine side of it, um, I think plastic surgery got this terrible like reputation. And I feel like skincare became this like replacement um, mm. for in the consumer market, if you know what I mean. And I, and I feel like it almost made people feel a little bit better you know, about, oh, well, I'm still getting something done, but it's not plastic surgery. And that's why I always wonder um, with editors working with dermatologists, like what happens or, or, you know, derms and plastic surgeons, because it's such a unique space, right? Like for, from a medical standpoint, like you, you don't know if everything works and if it works, I don't think dermatologists know either. That's why I wonder, um, because the research just isn't out there, you know? So to make any claims, like it must be so difficult, right? Like yeah. to get quotes and to get information out of them, because I, I'm guessing a lot of them are like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, research. Yeah. that's why like, yeah. So you can add, I mean, that's where the, it comes in really helpful is if you want to know the background behind an ingredient, a trendy ingredient, um, say something like watermelon extract that everybody's using, you know, yeah. going to a derm and saying a couple of your derms that you've got on your speed, speed email, speed dial, um, and ask them, you know, what's, what is the research available? What do you think? And that's, that's always really helpful. Um, yeah. Cause you're not trained on like watermelon extract and you know what I mean? Medical school or like peony or like, you know, all these crazy ingredients. Like we, as you know, in medicine, we don't learn about those things specifically. So I always, yeah. I, I think like, you know, with magazines and, and publications, I always wonder this is that, you know, it's one thing to consult dermatologists, but even then, like how much information are we all really able to get? Because it's just not out there, you know, the yeah. research isn't out there. Yeah. I think it's picking specialists that, you know, if, if you're talking about things like scalp psoriasis, finding a derm that really has done a lot of research in scalp issues and hair, you know, skin and hair. So, so yeah. picking your dermatologist based on what, you know, that they've studied in the past or where their research, you know, where their research has been and, and, and their practicing specialty has always one way to attack it. But, um, you know, yeah. another helpful thing is with talking about ingredients is that they can, you know, they have access, you know, we can look on JSTOR and, and these, uh, you know, the, where, what is it? The like research where you can look at all of the papers, research papers, oh, PubMed, you mean PubMed, PubMed and yeah. things like that, yeah. but sometimes we don't have access to them if you don't have an account and they do. So they can often look back and be like, well, you know what, this study in that was done in 2015, you know, they found out this, they can sometimes interpret what's really helpful is they can sometimes interpret those studies in a way that we can then report yeah. on to the general public that <laughs> makes sense that, right. you know, that was one of the hardest things that Alora was working on translating skincare and it's still not just Alora, pop sugar too, but was translating difficult studies or difficult procedures, plastic surgery you were speaking about and doing it in a way that made sense to somebody that is not a beauty editor or a beauty expert. Um, yeah. No, I can imagine. I can imagine how difficult that must be. I know like when I first started off as an influence, I was just an influencer on, on Instagram and 
um, you know, I wrote a couple of pieces that were like mini reviews, you know what I mean? Like I would go into PubMed and like look up like four articles on collagen and then try to summarize like the information I found and the data. And I was just, I remember at that, you know, at that time thinking, man, it must be so hard for editors and writers because this is just so tedious, you know, like it's yeah. such a oh, long yeah. process. Yeah. It, so I want to actually, um, I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to ask you what is in your beauty drawers right now that you are loving? Um, if you can share that with us. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sitting at my beauty drawer, so that is, (laughs) do you want to know skin particularly? Yeah, it would be great to have some skincare, some beauty, you know, makeup too. We're, we're open to everything here. So (laughs) Um, so skincare wise, I made a little list cause I didn't want to forget. Cause it's one of the worst things beauty editors are always asked what they like. And then your brain goes completely blank I feel like <laughs> it happens with my friends all the time. Um, yeah. I am really into, and I'm so glad it's available, uh, in the UK via cult beauty is Ron Robinson's brand beauty stat. Um, yeah. so the moisturizer is just beyond it's saved. My skin got so much drier when I moved to the UK, um, it went from being like a oily, shiny grease pit in New York to an arid desert in the UK. So I've just, it's been like moisturizer up the wazoo. Um, Love so, that. I'm actually going to be interviewing Ron. I'm so excited. Ah, <laughs> yeah. He's so sweet. And he's somebody as a cosmetic chemist that, you know, we used to, inter- I, I interview all the time for stories. So it's always, it's awesome that he's created his own brand and it's doing so well. Yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. I, what else, man? I'm very into the new BioEffect hydrating cream. Um, Ooh, what's that? I like, I like BioEffect as a brand. It's an Icelandic brand. Um, and I, I, they, they have really great research behind their, um, synthetic growth factor that they use. Um, it's grown in Iceland, um, from barley. My boyfriend's Icelandic. So I feel like that's part of the reason, but it's also just a really great product. That's so but, cool. I love that. Yeah. But, um, but no, it's, they, they, they came out with a new moisturizing cream and it's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm going to have to check them out. I've never heard of their brand, but I, it sounds great. <laughs> oh, they're great. They're absolutely great. Um, and let's see what else, um, the hero anti-inflammaging serum. Um, I am very, into that serum because of the science that was behind it, it was created by two um, scientists that were working on inflammation of the joints, um, oh, and looking wow. at the increased, um, so looking at inflammation and how it was attacking joints and causing early onset arthritis. And oh, I see. Okay. yeah, what they realized is that they could apply, I think they were talking to somebody and they realized that they could apply that to the inflammation of the skin. And so they figured out where on the stem cell, I think it is. Oh, oh my God. I'm, I'm probably messing up, but no, I get it. It's the science is hard to, <laughs> they, they figured out where, um, they could in, initiate the healing process to stop, you know, to slow down yeah, the, the mechanism basically. Yeah. 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 And I, I just thought it was really anything that comes from, you know, there's so many good things in beauty that have come from the medical field that yeah. was something totally different and now is used in skincare or hair care or whatever. Um, yeah. and then, um, I haven't tried it yet, but I'm very excited for Codex's new launch. I don't know if you know Codex, the brand. I um, do know of them, but they have a new launch. I didn't know that. Well, it's in the UK. Maybe this is an instance where it's in the UK first. <laughs> US. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but it's called Antu and it's all about the microbiome and 
she was um, the lead scientist behind it. Um, she was telling us at the event about how they went to an organization that is now looking, it tests your products. If you're a company or a brand, it tests your products on how they actually affect the microbiome. Cause I think that's one thing that. Oh, we, wow. That's really cool. Right. Because I think one of, and we kind of addressed this earlier, but you know, there's microbiome is huge and trending. And obviously I think it is, it, I think it's one of the most important things in skincare that we started talking about, but yeah. Yeah. Brands also, there's, yeah. There's also just not enough research on a lot of these products that have come out. So I feel like having a way to measure if these products are actually in fact feeding the microbiome or helping it in any way is really important because again, I just think a lot of brands were jumping on the trend and saying, okay, this is for your microbiome, but I don't know if there's enough research there for these products to be informed. Well, to do you anything. know, I will, I will tell you this. My father dedicated his life to research. Um, he's a PhD and one of his mm-hmm. specialties was the microbiome, the gut microbiome. Oh, okay. And, well, um, yeah. and I, and I actually talked to him. I asked him the same question that we're talking about because I was like, dad, you know, I keep seeing a lot of brands coming out about the, you know, with the focus on microbiome and he's, He's very like, he's on board, but he's also very skeptical because he's like, you know, all about the gut microbiome. So I'm curious to see where this goes, you know, the, the trend in skincare. Same. Same. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is so integrally tied to the gut, the gut. Um, you know, yes. I, think, I think they are so interconnected. Um, and I, well, I do think that there is something important about it being on the, the microbiome on the skin. I just don't know if, like I said, if there's enough information out there for us to be creating products to treat it at this point. So, right, um, right. so anyways, I'm, I'm excited to try the launch and, and see what it's like. Um, I really just, I'm so into that brand in terms of, I really think they put, you know, every single part of that brand is thought out and with sustainability in mind, they're really somebody who's getting sustainability right across every, you know, I every- love that. They've, they're actually on my, on my list. Codex is on my list of like, bucket list brands I really would love to interview so like yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god you could talk to the the founder for hours about every like it's so interesting so yeah I bet well you know Sophia this was amazing you are so fun to talk to and I'm so thankful for your time and your insight I mean I, every time I get to talk to an editor I just feel like I've learned a lot more <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thank you so much I really appreciate it yeah you're welcome thank you for having me and everyone out there, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions for me or Sophia, please leave them in the concept art, like the comment section, and we will definitely pass them along to her. Um, give us a thumbs up or a rating on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever it is that you find us and let us know how we're doing. Thank you so much, Sophia. Yeah, thank you.